Hey, this is Steve. This podcast is all about making the gospel relevant to your life. That means discovering the good news of Jesus, no matter what you're going through today. Have you ever just wondered, you know, what's the point? Why be a church person? Why get up, go to church? Why be religious? Why follow the rules? You know, what's the point of the whole thing? Paul asks that same question in his letter to Romans. Yeah, we're jumping back into our long study in this good book, and we're going to be asking the question today, what's the point? So we start in Romans 3. I got to kind of talk about where we're at as Paul is making this case. He's talking about stuff that nobody wants to talk about. He's frankly, he's, he's talking about things that we just don't want to deal with. You, you have those in your life, right? You have things you'd really just rather not talk about. You know, Susie, like getting old, you know. <laughs> I know, I have things in my life that I'd really rather not us talk about, you know, like like, for example, I know that when I'm driving in a place that I've never been before, and I'm trying to figure out, when, wait a minute, do I go here or do I go there? You know, you're driving, and you're trying to figure out how to get to where you're going. And I, I do the thing where I, I turn down the stereo so I can see where I'm going better. <laughs> you, know, I'm, you know what I'm talking about? Let's just don't talk about that stuff. Or, or getting old, I do the thing where I walk around the house like this. Has anybody seen my cell phone? I'm looking everywhere. I can't find my cell phone anywhere. Can, Sherry, can you, can you call my cell phone so I can find it? It'll, you know, do you have that? Does anybody do that? Right in my hand the whole time? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I know we have things we don't really so much want to talk about. And Paul addresses an issue that, frankly, we'd rather just not talk about. Paul repeats what Jesus tells us and what he says in other writings that he has. Paul tells us that all of us, you and me, we will all one day be judged. You and I will stand before the judgment seat of God and your life and my life will be Judged. I don't want to talk about that. You know, I've heard it described by some preachers that one day we'll all be in heaven and there'll be the big judgment seat and there'll be a giant TV and he will put on the TV all the sins you ever committed so that everybody can see. Really? I definitely don't want to talk about that. I don't want that TV to work. You know, I want it to be on the other channel that day when I show up. But he says we'll all be judged, and we don't want to talk about that. In fact, here's the way we talk about it. We ask the same question about it that Paul will ask in this part of Romans. And here it is. It's the first blank on your page. Why would a loving God judge us? Why would a loving God judge us? I mean, if he loves us, if he cares about us, why would he judge us? Paul's been working up to this question pretty well. He starts in the middle of Romans 1, and he starts to build a strong case to his readers, a very strong case, a 67-verse long case, this long, dark, deep, 
ugly horror story of a case about us and why we should be judged. 67 verses Paul takes to make the case that, and this is the next blank on your page, that God is very angry. Yeah, he spends most of chapter one, all of chapter two, and about half of chapter three making the case that God is very angry. And here's the bad news. He's angry at the non-church people. He's angry at the Gentiles, the irreligious people. Paul actually starts off his case by making this statement in Romans 1:18. He says, God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he's made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky and through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Paul's making the case that if you're not a follower of God, you're gonna be judged because you have no excuse. And all of us good church people go, yeah, 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 that's right. They're a bunch of losers and we don't like them either, right? I mean, we want wicked people to be judged, am I right? We want the terrorists to be judged. Don't you want the terrorists to be judged? We want the child molesters to be judged. We want the murderers to be judged, right? I mean, we love justice and we want the wrongdoers judged for what they've done. And Paul's making this case and he's trying to get the religious people in his day, specifically the Jews, he's trying to get their heads nodding. Yeah, 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 get them, God, go get them. And then Paul, as he's writing, turns and he smacks the religious people right in the face. In other words, the bad news gets worse. He says, you may think, you religious people may think you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad. And you have no excuse. He says, when you say the wicked should be punished, you're only condemning yourself. For you who judge others, you do the very same things. So Paul is making the 67 verse case that God is very angry. And if he was Oprah, he'd be saying, God is angry at you, and he's angry at you, and he's angry at you, and he's angry at you. He's angry at all of us. God is very, very angry at all of us. And I know, I know, okay, just, I'm going to take time out from my outline for a second. I know when we're talking about God being angry, I know we, we get kind of uncomfortable with that, don't we? I do. We get uncomfortable with the idea that God could be angry, especially if you've got anger issues in your past. Maybe not your anger issues, but maybe you had a spouse. Maybe you had a dad. Maybe you had someone in your life who would fly off the handle and break things and hurt people. So when I talk about God being angry, it's easy for you to identify with that. 
I know for a lot of people, they think when they think anger, they think that that represents someone who's lost control of their emotions. And they just fly off, they're just explosive for no reason. And so when you hear about God being angry, you equate it with that. And I just wanna, I just wanna take the time out and just assure you that God's anger is nothing like our anger. You hear me? God's anger is nothing like our anger. You know, God's not some random outburst anger issue, fly off the handle at whatever notice, unpredictable God. That's not who God is. That's not his nature. Anger is not God's nature. What is God's nature? The scripture tells us very, very clearly that God's nature is love. God is love. So his nature is to love us. And I just want to be really clear. His nature is to love. So God's nature is not to be angry. God's anger is provoked. Because anything that is unloving, anything that is misaligned with God's holiness, his righteousness, anything that breaks and causes suffering makes God angry. God doesn't get angry because he is by nature angry. God gets angry in response to our sin. So his anger is in his nature. His anger is provoked. And when God gets angry, his anger is righteous. It's holy. See, you can tell a lot about what someone cares about by what makes them angry. And I love the fact that God cares so much about me and about his good name that he gets angry at sin. God cares about that, and so he gets angry. That's how he responds. His nature is love, but his response can be anger. God is love, but he will get angry at our sin. Two very different aspects of his character. Does that make sense? So God is love, and he will get angry. I just want to make sure you also know that God's loving nature is not a response. It's his nature. Love is his nature, not his response. In other words, he loves you not because he sees something in you that he just falls in love with, right? Not because he's responding to who you are. You know, God's love for you was never love at first sight. God's love for you is because he is a loving God. That's just who he is. You love dogs, don't you? You love dogs. I mean, you love dogs. I mean, you see a dog, you're like, oh, there's a dog, and you want to pet the dog. Am I right? Right, so you love dogs, but Jamie, when a dog attacks another dog, when a big dog attacks a little dog, you want to punish the big dog, don't you? You'll get angry at the big dog because he's attacked the little dog. I've seen that happen. Love dogs, but dude, I'll get angry. So God is by nature loving, but he is in response anger, angry at our sin. Does that make sense? And because God is very angry, God will judge our sin. God will judge everyone, everything, and justice will happen. The terrorists will get God's justice. So will the Christians. All of us will be judged 
on that day. That day, judgment day, will be judged. Boy, if I could recommend one other sermon to you, it would be the sermon in the That Day series, as Paul's been making his case in Romans. Uh, we did a series called That Day, and there's one sermon called Final Answer. And man, I really, it's on that Romans page. I really recommend you listen to that sermon. I might do that sermon again. I think it's the best sermon I've ever preached. Not because I'm good, but because it's so revelatory. That sermon will change your outlook on the universe. That sermon will, will change your mind about what Judgment Day really even is and who it's really about. It'll change your perspective on creation and on God's plan for the world and where this is all going. So the sermon called Final Answer is a huge sermon, such a big deal that really, I'm not kidding, I might rerun that again at some point. So Paul's making this case, and Paul, good job, case made. I'm a sinner and God's very, very angry at me. And he's very angry at the religious and the irreligious, the Jew and the Gentile. And so the bad news is that God is angry, but there's even worse news that Paul gives us. Yeah, so he's making this case, and it's really heavy. It's really bad. Not only is God very angry, but here's the next blank on your page. God's very angry, and there's nothing you can do about it. He's very angry at the religious and the irreligious, the Jew and the Gentile. He's very, very angry. And church people, it doesn't matter what you do, there is nothing that you can do to keep God from being angry. There's nothing you can do to keep God from exercising his judgment. God is very angry. Does that step on your toes? Because it should. It really should. Because our culture sends the opposite message. Our church culture sends the opposite message. That you're by nature loved and accepted. That God just gives you grace. And that he just blindly loves and accepts you no matter what. Yet Paul, in the word of God, in Romans 1, 2, and 3, makes it very clear that God is very angry, and it doesn't matter what you do, he's angry at you. So as we arrive in chapter 3, Paul uh, imagines and anticipates the pushback that you're probably having right now. He knows what you're thinking because he wants you to think through this. He wants you to see that God's angry at you no matter what you do, right? And so he wants to get you thinking, and so he knows kind of where you're at, and so he tries to kind of go ahead and step ahead of your pushback on this issue. And so he writes this statement at the beginning of Romans chapter three. Here's what he says. He says, then, here's your, here's your response. What's the advantage of being a Jew? Is there any value in the ceremony of circumcision? That's what you're thinking, right? <laughs> okay, maybe not. Maybe that's not exactly what you're thinking. But I bet it kind of is. Let's just contextualize this to us today because we aren't Jewish and we have not practiced the ceremony of circumcision. But I think what Paul is saying transcends that 
He's saying, so then, if God's angry at me, and if there's nothing I can do about it, then what's the advantage of being religious? What's the advantage in being a practicing person of faith? What's the point then, Paul? If there's nothing I can do about it, what's the point? What's the value in all of this? I mean, I've been coming to church. It's been a pandemic and I've still been coming to church. You know, I, I'm serving at Tower Road. I, I'm giving myself away. I'm serving, I'm serving eight out of 12 of the weeks out there at Tower Road. Man, I'm giving myself away doing the right thing. I'm good to my family and, and I'm good to my neighbors. I, I, I try to swerve when there's a squirrel in the road. I mean, I do all kinds of good things. What's the advantage? What's the point if there's nothing I can do about it? He says, what's the point of being a religious person? And is there any value in the ceremony of circumcision? When Paul says the ceremony of circumcision, when he talks about circumcision, that's just kind of shorthand, Jewish shorthand for being in the law for making sure that you obey God's law you know because he gave his commandments and we like to see ourselves as good because we keep God's law can I get an amen we are good at keeping God's law let's just let's just see how good we are right now okay how, let's just for 10 commandments okay 10 commandments go ahead name number four yeah that's what I thought Name number six. Name number eight. You don't know. We like to think of ourselves as good religious people, good Christian people, but you and I don't even know the Ten Commandments. Come on, really? So what's the point of all this? I mean, when Paul's talking about the ceremony of circumcision, he's saying in the law. What's the point of being in the law? Paul, you're making an outrageous argument. This is crazy that you're telling us that we're working hard to do all the good things, but it doesn't even matter. It's outrageous. In fact, Paul has set up his own little conundrum here because he has said in Romans 2, he says, for merely listening to the law doesn't make us right with God. It's obeying the law. It's obeying the law that makes us right in his sight. Okay, well, it's obeying the law. We're trying, we're trying, we're trying. I mean, we, we, we know the first one or two. I mean, don't have any other gods before me. Uh, don't make a graven image. Uh, don't cheat on your spouse. Uh, don't murder anyone. We, we know some of them. We're just trying our best to obey. So if, if you yourself had said obeying the law makes us right. But then he also says, just a few verses later, this almost contrary statement. He says, a true Jew, a true religious person is one whose heart is right with God. True circumcision, there's that phrase again. He's talking about true religion, truly being in the law of God is not merely obeying the letter of the law, but it's a change of heart produced by the Spirit. It's not obeying. It's obeying, but it's not just obeying. What? So I got to obey stuff I can't even remember, and that's still not enough. There's more than just obeying. What's the point of even trying all this? I'm, I'm never going to get there. 
And that's the point. That's the whole point. What Paul wants you to feel in you right now is that no matter how hard you work, no matter how much you do, it's never going to be good enough. Remember, God is holy, right? He's perfect. And if you're going to be with God, you have to somehow achieve not three out of ten, not four out of ten. You have to achieve perfection. It'll never be good enough. You'll never be able to do enough. So as he's writing, he's anticipating this response. What's the point? What's the point? What's the advantage of being a Jew? And is there any value in circumcision? Because that day is coming when you will be judged. So is there any benefit? Is there any benefit at all? That's the question he's anticipating. And he gives the answer to that question right away here in Romans 3. He says, well, yeah, there's many benefits. There's great benefits. First of all, and by the way, you, you think he's saying first of all, as in he's starting a list of the things. But if you read the passage, there's no second or third or fourth at all. So I don't think he's saying, you know, first on the list. I think he's saying most of all, of first importance, the most important thing about being a religious person for us, for being a Christian, for them being a Jew, he says, first of all, the Jews were entrusted with the whole revelation of God. Hey, believers, weren't you entrusted with the whole revelation of God? Weren't you given the revelation of God? Hello? You and I have access to even more of the revelation of God than those Jewish people ever dreamed of. They had what we today call the Old Testament, but we today have also the New Testament. We got the entire word of God that has been given by God to us. We've been given it all. We've been so blessed today. Aren't you glad that God has given you his entire revelation? So if you and I are good Christians and we love the fact that God's given us the whole revelation of God, I'm just going to ask you a question. You came to church today. Where's your Bible? Got two, three, and a bunch of cell phones. Four, and a bunch of cell phones. Listen, listen, listen. I don't care if your Bible is paper or digital. I, I don't. It doesn't bother me one way or the other. I'm totally okay with you having a digital Bible. I'm not sure that I'm okay with you only having a digital Bible. Because if it's something you love, if it's something that's changing your life, it's got to be bigger in your life than a tiny little rectangle that you carry in your pocket, right? There's got to be more to it than that. The, the reason we make a big deal here about digital notes is not because I believe digital is superior to paper, although it is. Um, <laughs> But the reason is because, and I've said this before, I know that you're going to have bad days. You're going to have days when you're at work and everything goes to crap. And, and you're going to wonder if you can make it through the day. And you might just need a break to get away for a minute and just stop and hear from God. And you probably won't have your paper Bible with you, but you will have your cell phone. 
So I want to train you in knowing how to get to the Word of God quickly. That's why we're so big on the Bible app because it's right there in your pocket and it gives you access to everything in God's Word instantly. You don't have to thumb through. Now, wait a minute. Where's Malachi again? Hold on. It's back. Wait, no, it's over there. Hold, hold on. Wait. You don't have to do that. You just tap, tap to Malachi and you can go straight there. So it's wonderful for that reason. But I think for most of us, for most of us, we come in here. I was praying about it earlier. We come in here all distracted. And I think that we come in here filled with what Tucker Carlson says or filled with what we see on CBS News we're filled with whatever we've been binging on Netflix and totally missing the word of God, the revelation of God. We, we, we feed on junk food all week long and we just hope that the old fat guy is going to stand up in the front of the room and sprinkle enough of the revelation of God on us to where it'll make the rest of the week bearable. Man, that ain't going to work, is it? We need this. We've been given the whole revelation of God. You and I, religious people, we've been given. And I like that. Can I put that verse back up on the screen? We not had just been given it. Look at this. The Jews, or in our case, the Christians, we've been entrusted with the revelation of God. Entrusted. This word right here, entrusted with the whole revelation of God, it means something. Get this. You've been given something that doesn't belong to you. And your responsibility is to deliver it to the people that are to receive it. In, in, in my mind, I'm thinking about the guy in the movies, you know, with the steel briefcase handcuffed to his wrist, right? And he's picked it up for, he's the courier. He's just the courier. He's not the owner of the stuff in the briefcase. He's just the courier. He doesn't even have a key to it. The guy that gave it to him locked it and held onto the key and the receiver will unlock it with his key. But the courier is just in charge of delivering it and delivering it on time. You were entrusted with the whole revelation of God. Your responsibility and my responsibility is to deliver the valuable goods to where they belong. How are we doing on that? Because the Jewish people kind of blew it. I mean, let's just be honest. They kind of blew it. They, they were given, they were entrusted with that revelation from God. And they hid it under their bushel. They kept it kind of to themselves. In fact, they got real protective of it and they became really us versus them about it. We Jews have the law and those Gentiles, they don't and they deserve what's coming to them. How are how, how we, how we doing on that? Are we delivering the goods? Because I got I to gotta wonder, I'm going to ask the question, it's kind of embarrassing. I'm just going to tell you, it's kind of embarrassing. When was the last time you won someone to Christ? It's embarrassing to me. So I'm just going to be honest. This pastor, it's been a while. It's been a while. I should be doing it all the time. I was really privileged this past week to have lunch with my um, 
good friend Mina Mara. He's preached here a couple of times. And I didn't realize the day we had lunch until he told me as he was about to leave and we took a quick picture that it was the it was almost it was one day before the 35th anniversary of me winning him to Christ pray in the sinner's prayer with him 35 years ago you know what that means it means Lord I'm old yeah thanks she said she said I saw the picture I could tell <laughs> let me see if this sounds familiar to you you are the light of the world you are the salt of the earth. You are a city on a hill. How dare you hide your light under a bushel? But that's what we do, isn't it? Isn't that what we've done? I mean, we've so hidden our light, our kids can't even see it. We looked at it a few weeks ago. We've lost almost an entire generation the millennials and Generation Z right behind them don't believe in God and don't even want to talk about it. Couldn't care less. We aren't even winning our kids to Christ. What are we doing? We've been entrusted with the whole revelation of God and we're hogging it to ourselves. So Paul addresses this and he's actually a little kind about it for just a second. He's not harsh. Here's what he says. He says... Some of them, some of those that were entrusted with the revelation of God, some of them were unfaithful. They didn't deliver the goods. Some of them were unfaithful. But just because they were unfaithful, does that mean that God will be unfaithful? Of course not. Even if everyone else is a liar, God is true. Now, Larry, help me out. Keep this verse right here for a minute because this verse is hard. And I just want to make sure we understand what it's saying here. Paul is talking about how some of them were unfaithful to deliver the goods, but just because they did not live by the covenant they had with God, just because they weren't faithful to God, not, not because they just simply didn't believe, they were unfaithful like a spouse can be unfaithful. They, they didn't live up to the marriage vows that they had. Just because some of them did not deliver the goods, does that mean that God will be unfaithful? Does that, if they don't keep their promise, does that mean God won't keep his promise? No, God keeps all of his promises. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And we love to read these positive promises of God. I will bless you. I will keep you. I will give you a hope and a future. You know, all these promises we love, but, but we tend to forget. We tend to forget that all of God's promises are conditional, right? He says, I will be your God, you will be my people. If you, if you stand with me, if you stay by the word, if you walk with me, if, if you will be mine, I will be yours. But if, if you keep heading down the wrong road, if you keep pursuing all of the wrong things, if you keep playing in the mud with your sin, I'm going to let you have what you want. I want you to want me. That's what this is all about. But if you really don't want me, I'm not going to force you. In other words, Paul is saying that God has promised that he will be your God unless you choose your own God. 
That's God's promise. And God will keep his promise. And Paul says, of course not. He says, even if everyone else is a liar, God is true. In other words, in other words, even if all of us break the marriage vows with God, if all of us lie, what the Bible says liars go to hell, if all of us lie, if all of us break our vows, God will still be true to his side of it. God will keep his vows. He's not going to go, well, okay, come back to me later and we'll talk. God keeps his promises. In other words, what this is saying, if everyone else, if everyone has to die and go to hell, God is still going to be true to his promises. God will be true. If you're not sure how he's thinking about this, look at what he says next. The very next thing Paul says is this, as the scriptures say about him, and then he quotes David. This is a direct quote from King David. You remember King David? Man after God's own heart. God loves righteous King David. David was not a good man, maybe the best man. Man after God's own heart. But David blew it with God, right? Remember? David was really living in a way that pleased God, but then he blew it because he, remember, he stayed home when he should have gone off to, to war. He cheated with another man's wife. And then when he found out that he had gotten her pregnant, he had her husband murdered on the battlefield. Dude, he, David blew it. But he is still called the man after God's own heart because after David blew it, he finally, he finally woke up and realized what he had done. And David writes this psalm, Psalm 51. Paul quotes a very, very small snippet of it. I'm gonna give you what David says right before this, and I'll quote that too. But here's what David says in Psalm 51. He says to God, he says, against you and you alone, have I sinned? I have done what is evil in your sight. You, God, will be proved right in what you say, and you will win your case in court. Hey, when, when I did the message that I told you about on final answer about judgment day, God has a day in court. God himself has a day in court, and we talk about that huge huge turnaround of what you think judgment day is going to be so listen to that sermon but David is singing a song praying a prayer of repentance in other words what David is saying is that I am wrong and God next mic on your page God is right I'm wrong and God you're right even if you punish me severely for what I've done you're right you're right. God is holy and I am not. God is right and I am wrong. David also says in Psalm 51, he says, I am a sinner from birth, even from the moment I was conceived in my mother's womb. He's saying it's in my DNA. I can't help it. I'm just born a sinner. I'm a traitor. I'm a rebel against a holy God. And no matter how many right things I do, no matter how many right things I say, no matter how good and religious I am, there's nothing I can do to make up for what I've done against God. God, you're right, 
and I'm wrong. David knew the same thing that Paul knew, that God is very angry and there's nothing you can do about it. He's right and I'm wrong. Isn't that what it means to be a Christian? Doesn't it mean that you recognize that God is right and that you're wrong? Because it's that realization that leads you to repentance. And without repentance, there can't be forgiveness. Right? It's that realizing, God, you're right, I'm wrong. That leads us to turn from our old life and turn to him because he is right. Deuteronomy 34, he is the rock. His deeds are perfect. Everything he does is just and fair. He is a faithful God who does no wrong how just and upright he is. So this is what grace is all about. God gives us grace, and that's what makes him great, is he sees where we are. He sees that you and I have blown it, blown it, blown it, blown it, and that we're wrong, and that we deserve judgment, but he measures out grace for us by making sure that he loves us when he should be angry with us. That's what grace is all about, right? Right? I think you'd be happy about that. I mean, I think you'd be really happy about that because once you realize you're wrong, you realize that judgment day is coming, you would think you would know what's coming for you on that day, but that God gives grace for you. So grace is good. It makes you want to have every ounce of grace that you could possibly ever get. Am I right? I mean, that's my prayer. God, just give me, give me all the grace I can get because I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm wrong, and I know you're right. So, God, I just need your grace. The problem is that we make a switch somewhere in there, and sometimes we love his grace and take advantage of his grace. Sometimes we forget how good God's grace is. Like I had a friend of mine, a close friend of mine, who was living in sin, betraying God, willfully cheating on a spouse. And I looked at this friend and I said, you can't, you can't keep doing that. You got to stop that. God wants you to stop. And my friend, I promise, my friend looked at me in the eye and said, you know, I believe God's loving and I can do whatever I want to do. God's going to forgive me anyway. Don't you do that? Don't you trample on his grace? You know, I know nobody knows what I'm doing. Nobody knows about this. And I'm not hurting anyone. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not hurting anyone. It's just kind of quiet. God's just going to be okay with me on this sliding scale. He's going to be fine with me on this. Don't we do that? It just gives him a chance to give me more grace. That's the argument that Paul makes. He anticipates our taking advantage of his grace when he says in the next, next part of chapter three, he says, but some might say, our sinfulness serves a good purpose for it helps people see how righteous God is. Isn't it unfair then for him to punish us? In other words, I'm doing God a favor by sinning more because the more I sin, the more he gets to be the hero. The more he gets to show grace, the more he shows off how good he is. 
right? So I'm doing God a favor by sinning more. He also makes the same argument in different words in, in verse 7. He says, how can God condemn me as a sinner if my dishonesty highlights his truthfulness and brings him more glory? Right? Some people even slander us by saying, the more we sin, the better it is. Right? I mean, come on. Here we are trampling on his grace. Why would a loving God judge us? That's the question we come to. Why would a loving God judge us when we're really just making him out to be the hero? And so, you know, I can do what I want and God will forgive. Well, Paul answers this in two different places, in two different phrases. The first answer he gives is this in verse 5. He says, this is merely a human point of view. Paul's saying, don't think like that. That's not the way God thinks at all. You can do whatever you want and God will forgive. That's a small, self-centered, childish way to think. That is not the way God thinks. And once again, you're showing that you are a traitor, a rebel against God. In fact, he says this in verse 7. He says, those who say such things deserve to be condemned. When you think you can just slide by and sin however you want and God's just going to forgive you anyway, so you keep doing it, he's saying you deserve, hello, you deserve to be condemned. What? God, are you kidding me? Paul is a saint. He's an apostle. And he just wrote that some people, maybe me, could deserve to be condemned. Yeah, that's, that's what he's saying. He's saying, have you not heard the case I've just made? I, I've just made this 67-verse case. And here's one of the things he says right here. Look real quickly with me at Romans 3, 2 once again. He says, you were entrusted with the whole revelation of God. You were entrusted with the entire revelation of God, right? Christians, sum up the entire revelation of God in one word. Come on, help me. What? Jesus. Jesus, the person of Jesus Christ, is the full revelation of God. It's all in Him. Old Testament, New Testament, the Word of God is Jesus. In fact, Hebrews tells us that the Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. Yeah, what this means, listen down, this is so important, listen to me. What this means is that Jesus is the revelation of God. So what it means is God is very, very angry. He's very, very angry at you. And there's nothing you can do to stop God from being angry to you. But being a Christian means that you trust that everything that needed to be done for God to cease his anger at you has already been done in Jesus Christ. The work is complete. It is finished. He has already accomplished everything for you because Jesus went to the cross and judgment day already happened and it happened to Jesus. He took the blame for your sin and he took the punishment that you deserved. Judgment day has happened and it was exercised in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross and so he's paid that price and now you get to experience the freedom that his new life brings to you somebody ought to be excited about that 
That's what grace is, that he's already done everything. That God, there's nothing you can do in and of yourself to keep him from being angry. But if you're in Christ, there's nothing you can do to make him angry. Come on. I'm going to say that again. I'm saying it for Facebook, Annie. I'm going to say this for Facebook. If you are not in Christ, there is nothing you can do to keep God from being angry with you. But if you're in Christ, there's nothing you can do to make God angry at you. Because you're forgiven. You're clean. When he looks at you, he doesn't see your sin anymore. He's placed it all in the person of Jesus and he dealt with it at the cross. And that sin and its punishment is over and now you get to live in freedom with him. Somebody should be really excited about that. Come on. There's your Facebook clip you wanted, Annie, right there. Okay. She's in the other room probably taking a nap. All right. But he says, he says, if you think that way, if you think in those small human terms that you deserve to be condemned. You see, I find myself sometimes thinking I can just sneak by with this one. I can get by with saying what's really on my mind. I, I, I can slide by with this compromise. And I think, I think I'll be okay with God. But he says those that think that way deserve to be condemned. The reason he says that is because if you and I, when you and I think that way, it's because we haven't been broken by grace. We haven't seen how holy he is and how awful we are. We haven't stared our sin in the eye and recognized it for being the evil crime against a holy God that it is. We haven't caught a glimpse of the cross and seen the price that Jesus paid to kill all that sin in our life. We haven't seen it, and it hasn't broken us. It hasn't changed our hearts and changed our lives, so we take it for granted, and we abuse it, and we stomp all over it. You take for granted that God just loves, and we forget that he's also right. We take for granted in the midst of this broken, crumbling disaster of a world that he's giving you grace far beyond what you could ever deserve. In Hebrews 12, it says, since we are receiving a kingdom that is unshakable, let us be thankful and please God by worshiping him with holy fear and awe for our God is a devouring fire. When you really see how good he is, when you really taste his grace in your life, dude, it will consume you. It will wreck you. It will change you forever. Like it did for the psalmist who wrote, Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. My health may fail and my spirit may grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. Is the cry of your heart to be with God? Or is it to play in the mud of your sin? Have you caught a glimpse of his good grace to you? Or are you fixated on all of the crap that you like to play with in your life? My challenge to you today in this message, 
I think Paul's challenge to you in Romans 3 is the last blank on your page, to live like God is right. To live your life as if God is actually right and that you are actually wrong and to have a posture of repentance, surrendering your life every day to him and trusting in his good grace. Mm-hmm.